Can you hear me now, David? Is that better? Perfect. We'll, tr we'll again take us, church, as I previously mentioned, uh, three weeks to work our way through. Nevertheless, as for today, we will be looking specifically at just Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where we will pick up church at the place where the prophet Habakkuk was left to respond to the Lord's answer concerning his previous two complaints. Those complaints being, number one, about how long the prophet Habakkuk would need to cry out to God until he, God, finally did something about the evil that was running rampant throughout the nation of Judah or throughout the nation of God's covenantal people. To which God responded to the prophet Habakkuk by saying to him that he is indeed going to discipline the nation of Judah for their wickedness and sin, and that he was going to do so by, chapter 1, verse 6, raising up the Chaldeans, a.k.a. by raising up the Babylonians as the tool of discipline against the nation of Judah. To which Habakkuk then, in utter shock, responded back to God by bringing his second complaint before him. This time saying, in essence, God, how on earth can you use Babylon as the tool to discipline the nation of Judah when you are a God who is everlasting and sovereign and holy and faithful? Because, yes, Judah, they are evil, but the evil that is taking place in Judah is nothing compared to the evil that is taking place in Babylon. Therefore, it would seem to go against your good and righteous and holy character, God, to discipline Judah with the nation of Babylon when Judah is way more righteous than the nation of Babylon. And as we have seen over the past three weeks, church, God in his mercy again responded to the prophet Habakkuk this time by telling him initially in chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous shall live by his faith. In essence, declaring to the prophet Habakkuk that he, God, is faithful and that he will assuredly vindicate those who believe in his promises, preserve those who trust in his word, and ultimately deliver those whom he declares as righteous. Whereas on the flip side of that, that he, God, is also faithful to judge the wicked. To which God clearly confirms to the prophet Habakkuk throughout the rest of chapter 2 by telling him that although Babylon will be used as the rod of discipline against the nation of Judah, Babylon, they will also reap exactly what they have sowed. Meaning the day was coming when God would carry out his perfect justice and judgment against Babylon and that the mighty nation of Babylon would be plundered, broken down, destroyed, and ultimately put to shame because as powerful and as mighty and as imposing as Babylon was, God, he is still God. God, he is still in control. And God, verse 20, is still in his holy temple, still active, still reigning, still sovereign and still God, and thus will, just as he has always done in the past, judge the wicked and deliver those whom he declares as righteous. For that church is the word that the prophet Habakkuk was left with to contemplate, to dwell on, and ultimately respond back to. Which now takes us to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, 
be reverently in awe of your God. Christian, be reverently in awe of your God. Thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Habakkuk chapter 3, as we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. And if you are joining us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know that is okay, for there is a Bible located in the chair in front of you with your name on it. Meaning if you do not own a Bible, then we want you to take a Bible, to keep a Bible, and to bring a Bible home with you today. However, the only thing we ask if you take one is that you read it, starting today by turning to page 786 and joining us as a church body as we hear the Word of God together this morning. So again, we are in Habakkuk chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning, where the prophet Habakkuk writes, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His brightness was like the light, raised, flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, if there are any distractions running around in our head right now, we pray, Lord, that you clear them. Open our eyes this morning and our ears, soften our hearts to be able to receive your word. Lord, to glorify you for who you are and to worship you how you want to be worshipped this morning. Father, it is a mighty and powerful word you have laid before our eyes this morning, displaying the manifestations of your glory. Father, help us as we leave here today to be more in all of you, because we have seen your glory in this text. Father, I pray that you give my lisping, stammering tongue this morning the words to speak, Lord, so that you be glorified. I pray that I communicate accurately the truths of your word, that I do it in a humble and confident way, not in my own confidence, Lord, but in the confidence that you have given to us in the truth of your word. Father, help me to rely on you completely this morning and give this dear flock the words that they need to hear so that their eyes be opened to your glory and they walk out of here reverently in awe of you fearing not man, but only that of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, behold and be an all-Christian of the work of your God. Behold and be an all-Christian of the work of your God, verses one and two. 
a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigiono. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. So we see here, church, in verse 1, that Habakkuk responds to the Lord's good and just and faithful answers by, what else? Going to the Lord in prayer. However, this isn't just any type of prayer. This is a prayer, verse 1, according to Shigionov. Now, I assume some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, what on earth does Shigionov mean? And the answer to that question, church, is this. We don't know exactly what Shigionoth means. However, what we do know is that this word Shigionoth is some kind of musical term, and thus it is likely referring to some kind of musical arrangement or instruction about how this prayer of Habakkuk could actually be sung, which makes sense when you consider that Habakkuk actually closes this book by writing in verse 19 to the choir master with stringed instruments. Therefore, what? We seem to have here, church, in chapter 3 is, as Walter Chantry describes it, a prayer of confidence and of hope and of trust that the righteous people of Judah could all sing together before they were taken away into Babylonian captivity and during their Babylonian captivity and after their rescue from Babylonian captivity as a way to remind themselves and to strengthen their faith that their God has always been and and always will be faithful to judge the wicked and to deliver those whom he declares as righteous. Therefore, with that as our backdrop this morning, church, the content of this prayer or the opening words of this psalm from the prophet Habakkuk, they begin like this in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath remember mercy. So Habakkuk here begins his prayer by acknowledging that he has, verse 2, heard the report of you. Now some understand this phrase to mean just the report or just the answers that God had given directly to the prophet Habakkuk throughout the course of this book. However, what Habakkuk seems to be alluding to here instead when he says that I have heard the report of you isn't just the answers that he has received thus far from the Lord as recorded in this book. But even more than that, it's also all the reports that Habakkuk has heard throughout the years of his life concerning how God has always been faithful to rescue, save, and sustain his people. For Habakkuk has heard the reports, church, that his God was faithful to rescue his people out of the land of Egypt, that his God was faithful to swallow up an Egyptian army at the Red Sea, and that his God was faithful to sustain his people for 40 years following their exodus out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, the confidence of Habakkuk's prayer here, it stems not only from all that he has personally heard from the Lord, but also from all the other countless stories he has heard about how his God has always been faithful to save his people. And thus, with all this remarkable and wonderful revelation from God just stirring around in the soul of Habakkuk, the prophet here in verse 2 can simply confess that your work, O Lord, do I fear. 
Because in hearing all the reports of the Lord and grasping all the works of the Lord, Habakkuk here is simply left in awe, recognizing and appreciating that his God truly is immutable, impeccable, and incomprehensible, eternal and infinite and transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and sovereign, holy, and good. And thus is it any wonder, church, why reverently fearing the Lord for who he is and the mighty works that he has done truly is the beginning of wisdom. Because to truly see God for who he is is to reverently and fearfully be in all of him. For as Diego mentioned last week briefly in his sermon, in the Chronicles of Narnia, which is an allegory written by the late C.S. Lewis, Lewis tells of two characters, those characters being Susan and Lucy, who were getting ready to meet Aslan the lion, Aslan being the character who represented that of Jesus Christ in the story. Now in the story, two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, cautiously prepare Susan and Lucy for their encounter with Aslan. Because Susan, who originally thought Aslan was a man, was taken aback when she found out that Aslan was a lion and admitted to being rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mrs. Beaver replied, That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, for if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. To which Lucy asked, well, isn't he safe? Safe, cried out Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear anything that Mrs. Beaver told you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good, for he is the king, I tell you. So now, church, with the prophet Habakkuk grasping more intimately the very word that he has heard from the Lord and all the faithful and amazing and all-inspiring deeds that the Lord has done in the past for his people, the prophet Habakkuk now confidently and even remarkably says in verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And I say remarkably, church, because remember, this is the same guy, Habakkuk, who initially, when confronted by the idea that God was going to use Babylon as the tool of discipline against the nation of Judah, Habakkuk, he nearly flew off the rails, saying things like, God, are you not from everlasting? God, are you not sovereign? God, are you not holy and faithful and good? For how can you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he, for that was the prophet Habakkuk's initial response to God. Whereas now, church, he petitions and he requests and he pleads with God in verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it, in the midst of the years, make it known. Meaning, in the years to come, God, do your work. Do the work that you said you were going to do. Discipline the nation of Judah, judge Babylon, and deliver your people, and do whatever else you need to do, God, in order to accomplish your will. Because even though I may not understand all of it, I know you, God, are faithful and loving and good and that your way is always best. However, as you do your work, God, among your people and among your nations, please, verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. For Habakkuk knows, church, that it will only be the mercy of God that will keep Babylon from literally wiping Judah off the face of the earth. 
just as it is only the mercy of God that keeps us from facing the wrath, the punishment, and the eternal condemnation that we deserve for our sins. Nevertheless, as we wrap up point one this morning, I am going to do so not by focusing on the mercy of God. Instead, I am going to close point number one this morning by focusing on how our understanding of who God is and the previous works that he has done, how that should impact us as Christians in all we go through today. Because too often, church, when we see evil in this world, or the righteous suffering in this world, or the children of God facing persecution and trials and hardships in this world, too often we instinctively project our limited understanding of justice onto God, and we shake our heads at God and think, how could a God who is supposed to be good allow his children, someone like me, to suffer? Or we pretend to be all-knowing like our God and demand that God take away any suffering in our lives and simply bring about his wrath and justice and judgment against those who are doing to us any kind of harm. And yet rarely, Christian, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, do we stop and contemplate and or consider I wonder what God is trying to teach me in the midst of this suffering. I wonder how God is trying to refine me in this time of trial. Or, and let's just cut to the chase here, church, I wonder what sin I am potentially being disciplined for during this period of pain that I have been called to endure. Because make no mistake, brother Christian, sister Christian, the Lord, he disciplines those whom he loves and he chastises every son he receives. Hebrews 12, verse 6. Now, I'm sure some of you may be sitting there this morning thinking, what? No way. I mean, get out of here, pastor, for that is not possible. For why would a good and loving and merciful heavenly father ever discipline those whom he loves? To which I will say, well, why do I discipline my six-year-old Theo when he jumps onto our trash cans in order to climb onto the roof of our house? Why do I discipline my four-year-old Simon when he gets a Lego stuck up his nose and we need to use tweezers in order to get them out? Why do I discipline my two-year-old Glory after she eats her fourth handful of dirt? For I do not do it, church, to steal their joy, nor do I do it, church, to be mean or nasty or hateful to them, for I discipline them, church, because I love them. I discipline them because I do not want them to continue in their sin and to keep doing the things that could potentially do them harm. Therefore, if that is the case for me, some earthly Father, how much more than Christian when will your Father who is in heaven discipline you in order to destroy any strongholds in your life so that you can repent of your sin, turn from your transgressions, and grow in Christ-likeness? For as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, Christian, when things are apparently going against you, the thing to do is not to simply look at the situation and ask questions of why but instead to look at yourself and say, what's of my soul? 
In essence, in the midst of our trials, church, we must be quick to look ourselves in the mirror and see if there is lust in our lives that we are still holding on to, idols in our lives that we are still bowing down to, or sin in our lives that we still love to submit to. And make no mistake here, church, in no way am I saying that every trial and every pain and every source of suffering we face is the discipline of the Lord, for I am not saying that. However, what I am saying is that the Lord does discipline those who he loves. And thus, during those times of trials that we face, Christian, we should be much quicker to examine our hearts and to repent of any sins that we may be being disciplined for instead of questioning and doubting our God's goodness when he doesn't instantly take our trials away. In short, what I am trying to tell you this morning, Christian, is this. Do not be afraid of any work that God is doing in your life, including that of discipline, because in all you go through, Christian, it is God who ultimately is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, Christian, trust in the faithfulness of God, be in all of the graciousness of God, and always be willing to submit to his will, to heed his discipline, and to repent of your sins, for God will complete the work he started in you, Christian, even in the midst of your trials. Which brings us to point number two. Behold and be in awe, Christian, of the glory of the Lord. Behold and be in awe, Christian, of the glory of the Lord. Verses three through six. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. So obviously, what we have here, church, is very much poetic language which means there is a lot of debate, a lot of nuance, and a number of different interpretations in terms of what each and every little detail means. Now, I tend to side with the scholarship that believes that what Habakkuk seems to be doing here is this, that he is transitioning his prayer from a petition to God to that of praise of God whereby he begins recalling certain historical events or previous manifestations of God when God powerfully acted in order to deliver his people, like when God saved his people from Egypt, and then making the connection that since God was faithful in the past to deliver his people, so too then will God be faithful to deliver his people again. Or as theologian Owen Palmer Robertson put it, it is a collage of sorts or a collection of many images to convey both past experiences and future expectation, where Habakkuk colors the reality of God's future manifestation by recalling the many concrete instances of his intervening in the history of the past. 
And thus Habakkuk is painting a glorious picture of God here coming to do exactly what Habakkuk had petitioned God, requested God, and pleaded with God to do. That being to come to revive his work and to deliver those whom he declares as righteous, in essence depicting a future exodus of source of the people of God. And thus this picture begins, or this collage begins in verse 3 with, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Teman Church is likely referring to the region of Edom, whereas Mount Paran is likely referring to the Sinai wilderness, which might not mean much of anything to you this morning. However, the simple mentioning of the words Teman and Mount Paran to the original audience of this book would have instantly caused them to think, as James Brunkner pointed out, of the region where God's people found refuge from Egypt after they were delivered at the Red Sea, and where God's people were established under his instructions at Mount Sinai, and where God acted in mighty ways to lead, protect, judge, and shape his people as he led them into the promised land. Therefore, just as God brilliantly came from Teman and Mount Paran to deliver his people from Egypt, so too does the prophet Habakkuk confidently believe that God will show up and do this again. And when he does, church, make no mistake, verse 3, his splendor, it will cover the mountains and the whole earth will be full of his praise. And his brightness, verse 4, it will be like the light and rays will flash from his hands. For when the glory of God appears, church, it is like a mighty thunderstorm with terrifying and dazzling bolts of lightning shooting and flashing forth for all to see. For what Habakkuk seems to be alluding to here, church, is when the glory of God dwelt at Mount Sinai, which would have caused Habakkuk's original readers to dwell on the time when the people of God in Exodus chapter 20 saw this manifestation of God or saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound and the trumpet and the mountain smoking and were afraid and trembled and stood far off. However, church, although the appearance of the glory of the Lord is like the light, as we also see in verse 5, pestilence, it goes before God and plague, it follows at his heels. For just as the plagues were a common weapon used by God in the past when he struck Egypt with 10 of them, so too are they fully at his disposal today. In short, brother Christian, sister Christian, when the God of the universe arrives on the scene to confront the wicked and to vindicate the righteous, even, verse 6, the mountain and the hills will be scattered and sunk low, since it is only, and I mean only, church, our God, verse 6, whose ways are everlasting. For this is, church, an astonishing, all-inspiring, and glorious vision of God coming to do what he has faithfully done in the past and will be faithful to do in the future, that being to justly judge the wicked and to deliver his people from evil. And yet, instead of continually fearing that God church, a God who is immutable in that he doesn't change, and a God who has proven himself throughout history to be faithful, far too often as Christians we fear anything and everything other than that God. 
man's opinions instead of that God, the nations instead of that God, ideologies instead of that God, climate change instead of that God, sickness and viruses and disease instead of that God. And yet our very own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. For I read a story this week, church, from the Gospel Herald about a missionary who was teaching a recent Hindu convert the Lord's Prayer. And when the missionary got to the end of the first clause, Our Father who art in heaven, the Hindu woman immediately stopped and said to him, Wait just a second. For if God is our Father, then that is enough, for there is nothing now to fear. And for one whose life was haunted by the consistent threat of attacks and persecution and strife, that was a sweet, sweet message for her soul indeed on that day. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, if you are wrestling with fear this morning, Fear of the nations, fear of man, fear of anyone or anything, then let me encourage you this morning to simply open your eyes and to see the power of God in these verses, the sovereignty of God in these verses, and the magnificent, everlasting, and eternal glory of God in these verses, and recognize that everything in this life that you may fear when the God of the universe arrives in all his glory, they all will submit to him. For our God is transcendent, church, meaning he is above and beyond anyone or anything in this world that you may fear. Therefore, Christian, do not fear or seek refuge in the things of this world that will literally crumble at the sight of the glory of God, but instead fear the one who can destroy both body and spirit and who can be your stronghold in a day of trouble. For fear the Lord and not man, church, since it is the Lord who will come and who will reign forever and ever and ever. Now, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, you have heard me speak at length this morning concerning this concept of fearing the Lord, which does not mean that we as Christians need to be afraid of the Lord or scared of the Lord or fearful of the Lord, but instead that we as Christians need to reverently be in awe of the Lord and respectful of the Lord and desire to submit to the will of the Lord in all that we do. However, with that being said this morning, non-Christian, please make no mistake as for you, You do indeed have every right to be scared and afraid and downright terrified at the Lord this morning. And I say that to you lovingly because non-Christian, our God, he is a consuming fire who will ultimately judge and punish and eternally condemn the wicked. Therefore, my question to you this morning, non-Christian, is this. Is today the day that you begin to fear God? 
For is today the day that you begin to see the holy perfection of your God and the imperfection and the weight of your own sin. And like the crook on the cross at Calvary, cry out to Jesus Christ this morning and say to him, remember me, help me, and please save me from my sin. For there is only one way, non-Christian, and one way alone that you can be saved from your sin and reconciled back into fellowship with your holy God forever. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ alone. That accomplishment being non-Christian, that he, Jesus Christ, came into this world as truly God and as truly man to save us from our sin. And he did that initially for us non-Christian by living the life that we could never live, meaning the law that we break over and over and over again. Jesus Christ, he perfectly kept that law for us by living a life that was without sin or transgression or offense, and thus perfectly and completely fulfilled the law of God for the children of God. However, non-Christian, Not only did Jesus Christ keep the law of God perfectly for the children of God, but he also paid the price for their breaking of the law in that he, Jesus Christ, also willingly bore the wrath that we as sinners deserve for our sin by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and dying a sinner's death in our very place as our very substitute. In essence, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. However, non-Christian, and here is the mind-blowing, all-inspiring, eternal truth that you need to hear this morning, being that Jesus Christ was sinless. Sin and death, they had no claim over him, or power over him, or control over him, and thus couldn't keep the sinless Son of God dead. Therefore, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and defeated sin and destroyed death and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ for he is the only one who can forgive you of your sin non-Christian and give you the gift of eternal life. Thus let today be the day non-Christian that you fear God and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And as for the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, thus far this morning, We have considered the discipline of the Lord and how that should lead us to repentance and grow us in Christ-likeness. And we have also considered this morning the powerful, all-inspiring, and astonishing glory of the Lord and how that should cause us as Christians to fear the Lord and not that of the world or that of man. And thus, as we close this morning, we will build on that point specifically by looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, which reads, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. 
Now, what seems to be described here, church, without going into too much detail, is that you likely have nomadic people in view here who in Habakkuk's vision are encamped in the same region where the glory of the Lord is passing by as God makes his way to carry out his justice against Babylon. Now these nomadic people, they didn't seem to be a people who were particularly hostile toward God or particularly hostile toward the people of God. Nevertheless, they are still a people who worship their own counterfeit gods and who ultimately did not fear the Lord. However, that is all certainly about to change, church. Because when the glory of the Lord comes sweeping by these nomadic people and his splendor covers the heavens and rays go flashing forth from his hands and pestilence goes ahead of him and plagues follow behind him and the nations and the mountains and the hills, they will all quiver and quake before him. Then you better believe that these people who only had their little man-made metal idols to cling to were all, verse 7, trembling in absolute terror at fear at the presence of the glory of the Lord. Now, although verse 7 here is focusing specifically on the pagan or on the unbeliever, I think we would still do well, church, to consider our lives in light of this verse, especially since I think the last thing in the world we'd want to be doing when the glory of the Lord appears is to be giving our glory to our bank accounts or honor to our cars, or praise to our wardrobes, or adoration to our favorite websites, worship to our favorite celebrities, devotion to our favorite ideologies, or love to any other counterfeit God in this world. For I have no idea, church, when God will come again, for only he knows that. However, let the fact that he will come again in all this awesome and power glory to deliver those whom he declares as righteous and to ultimately judge the wicked, motivate us, church, and stimulate us, church, and call us to action this morning, church, to never give our glory or honor or praise to some man-made idol that will ultimately perish in the presence of our God's glory, but to instead give our full glory, honor, and praise to the King of the ages, to the one who is eternal, to the one who is all-powerful, and to the one true God who will reign forever and ever and ever. Therefore, my beloved, fear that God, submit to that God, worship that God, and abide only in that God, so that at his coming you will not need to shrink from him in shame, but instead you can run to him with confidence, as one who has already been declared righteous by grace alone, through your faith alone alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body realize that our God is immutable and that he has not changed, does not change, and will never, ever, ever change. And thus if our God was good and faithful to deliver those whom he declared as righteous in the past, then what do we as the righteous have to fear in the future? For the answer to that question is absolutely nothing. Therefore when hard times and 
trials and seasons of strife do come, let us be sure, church, to seek the will of God in our lives and to ask ourselves, is it well with my soul? For there, if there is an idle father in our lives, we pray that you strip it from us. And if we fear man more than you, God, we pray that you lovingly correct us and help us to see you, God, as you are, as holy and just and upright and perfect, worthy of our full honor and glory and praise. For it is you, God, who works in us now, both to will and to work for our good pleasure. Therefore, to you, God, and you alone be the glory for the work you have done and the work you are doing, even in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray, church.